Good morning. Just so you know, Aaron is doing just fine at seminary. And he's my favorite kind of student. Um, I've been in ministry for a long time, and I started teaching at the seminary quite a few years ago. And my favorite, they, because I don't know, for whatever reason, they're really gracious, and they kind of let me pick my schedule. And so I always pick the Monday morning classes. And, this is, and the reason for it is because Monday mornings is the time that pastors take off. And so if pastors are going to like take a class at the seminary, Monday morning is when they show up. And I just really like working with pastors. I really like the students that come directly from Bible college because they got all their philosophy in order and they can talk ontological equality and functional subordination in the Godhood, which is fun for about half a second. But, but because a lot of them haven't actually been in ministry, they don't really know what you do with that. Like what I just said there actually matters a lot. And I know it doesn't mean anything to you and that's totally fine because it's not the language that we use in everyday life. And so... Like, what's the point of saying anything like that? Basically, that means the persons in the Godhood, Father, Son, and the Spirit, they're equal. But they don't work in exactly the same way. So the Spirit does something in your life that's different than what the Father does, but they work together. Like, that's a lot better way to say that, right? And see, pastors on Monday mornings know that. And the people that are coming straight out of Bible college don't know that. And so they like to talk with the fancy language. And they don't even know what the right questions are. And so I really appreciate having Aaron and others like him in class because it's, it's about ministry. And, I, and I'm all about that. So it's, it's a privilege for me to be able to, to talk ministry about a passage in the Bible that, that Aaron had asked me to touch on today. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 10. So really, this is where you guys are in your study of Luke? Awesome. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to look at a passage in Luke that you've probably heard about before. It's actually a really popular passage to, uh, I don't know what the right word is. It's not really pre, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a popular passage to vamp on, if that means anything to anybody. People like to let, they like riff off of this, jazz musicians, like they go off and do their own thing. This is a great example of people like to go off and do their own thing on a Bible passage. It really has nothing to do with what the Bible passage is about. But I guarantee you've heard this passage before. Even if you don't spend any time in church, you've probably heard about the two women here. Uh, their, their names are Mary and Martha. How many have heard of Mary and Martha? Okay, well, okay, you know, forget what the Bible says for just a second then. Okay, Mary and Martha. Who's the better sister? Now, oh, come on, you've heard it. Who's the one who gets law? Who's the one that gets said you need to be like her? Yeah. Who's the one that gets said you need to not be like her? Martha. Yeah. And in fact, if you, if you look at Christian literature, it's interesting. There's like a whole industry on Martha bashing. Seriously, like go online this afternoon and just type in Mary Martha, just those two words, and see what books come up. And you're going to see all kinds of books that, that run the gamut from having a Mary heart in a Martha world, which is the idea you want to have Mary's attitude, even though the world is all messed up and Martha-ish, which means that Martha's the messed up one, right? You get those. Those are the nicer ones. Then you got others like... Um, like Mary versus Martha. It was a best-selling book a couple of years ago. Mary versus Martha. Like I said, a cage fight. And, and you, there's no question about who's supposed to come out on the front. I mean, Mary's the better one. Mary's the one who gets Jesus. Martha's the one who's too what? She's too busy. And my question this morning is, isn't that fair? Let's take a look at what Luke actually has to say. He starts in uh, verse 36 of chapter 10 in Luke. As, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was so distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. 
You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, who looks better in the story? It's clearly Mary, isn't it? I mean, and, and it's clear that Martha has a problem, and I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I, I will say that this, this passage clearly shows Jesus correcting Martha. Martha is off. She needs to be course corrected. She needs to be brought back into line with what God wants her to be about, what he wants her to be involved in. There's no question about that. Martha is definitely in the wrong here, okay? But I'm not sure she's in the wrong for the reasons that we think she is. We think she's in the wrong because she's too what? Busy. But I'm not convinced that's necessarily what Luke is saying. And there's a couple of reasons I say it. One of them is this phrase at the very beginning. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. In Greek, that's actually just one word. It's hupodekomai, and I know you don't care about that, but if you, you, you can take advantage of great online Bible resources, you could actually look up that word and find out where else it occurs in Scripture. And sometimes that's useful because you kind of get a feel for how a word gets used. It's not a common word. Hupodekomai is the only word that occurs a few times in the New Testament. So we have it once here. I want you to keep your finger here and turn with me to another place where it shows up. And that's in Luke 19. When you're trying to understand how an author uses words, it's always good to read other places where the same author has used the word. And so in Luke chapter 19, there's another fairly famous story. It's the story of the wee little man. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Zacchaeus was... Yeah, okay. So Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. This is Luke 19.1. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was coming that way. Now, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, that welcomed him gladly, if you want to underline it, that's exactly the same word that we find back in Luke 10, talking about Martha opening her home to him. It's even translated exactly the same way. So that's one other place. And what do you think when Zacchaeus welcomed him gladly, is that a good or a bad thing? It's clearly a good thing. But what's involved in opening your home to somebody? I mean, if you think about it, even today, when you open your home to somebody, there's certain obligations that are kind of implicit in that, aren't there? I mean, if somebody comes in, what's one of the things you need to do for them? You need to make sure they're clean, right? Give them an opportunity to take a shower if necessary. After they've been there for a little while, what do you probably need to do? feed them. I mean, that's just part of the obligation. If you don't offer them the opportunity to take a shower or to wash their hands or to take off the coat, take off the shoes, you don't offer them an opportunity to eat, are you being a good host? Yeah, and, and that's the reason that I say there may be something else going on here. When Luke uses this word hupodecami, it's clearly a word that's connected to something we call hospitality. And there's certain obligations that come when you're being hospitable. In the ancient world, that was even more so than it was today. My wife and I had a long conversation yesterday about hospitality because she's going to be teaching on it soon. And it's interesting, you know, she was saying that in our culture, kind of Martha Stewart is the poster child for hospitality. But that's not biblical hospitality. I mean, Martha Stewart's the poster child for I can never possibly live up to that standard, right? It's like, it's crazy complicated. And like, how can I possibly do that? If that's what it means, I can't pull it off. And like, I don't know, maybe I think our culture goes the other direction. We either go, well, I can't pull off the Martha Stewart hospitality. So hospitality means I make sure the house doesn't smell too, too bad. 
when guests come in, right? Spray some Febreze about, oh, that's, that's all I can do. Well, that's not hospitality in the ancient world. There was a lot more going on. And a lot of what hospitality involved in the ancient world was, was sort of like almost putting your hedge of protection or your cover of protection over whoever came into your house. Turn with me to another place where Luke uses this same word. It's in the book of Acts. Chapter 17. And if you didn't know, then that's a little fact you can file away for today. The, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. In fact, he wrote them as a two-part book. It's really the book of Luke-Acts. And for some reason, somewhere in the history of the church, they stuck John in the middle there. And they broke it up. But it's interesting. There's like a lot of stuff in the way that Luke has written that matches up with the stuff the, the book of Acts has written. So they make this sort of two-part house. It's really cool. I won't bore you with the details. Come join me on Monday morning sometime, and I'll, I'll bore you out of your mind with it. But... Um, the point is that it's the same author and he's doing some similar kinds of things. And so we see him using this word in Acts. It'll probably give us some insight into how he's using it back in Luke. And here's what we get in the book of Acts. Um, let's start in verse 5 of chapter 17. Basically what's happened is Paul's been preaching and some people have come and, and they're very jealous. And so they've, they've stirred up trouble. So verse 5 it says, But other Jews were jealous and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. You've got to love that, don't you? Like, that's, that's all kinds of emotional, evocative, bad characters. Rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. And they formed a mob. And they started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, as when they didn't find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, and they shouted, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. I love that description of Christians. Because that's who they're talking about. You know all these, these Christians that have caused trouble all over the world? That is an awesome description for us. How much trouble are you causing? It's not a bad question to ask, because apparently the Christians in the first century lived in such a way, that's what, that's what they were thought of. They were troublemakers. All right. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. It's the same word again. Hupo dekamai. Jason has opened his home. Jason has brought them in. And what's interesting, it says that, you know, Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all defying Caesar's decreed. And when they heard this, Jason and the others were the ones who were in trouble. Now, what has Jason done? Like, what's Jason's crime? Why is he in trouble? I mean, according to Luke here, there's only one thing he's done. Only one thing they can accuse him of, and that is he has opened his home. He's let these troublemakers come here, and because he had opened his home to him, he was now the one who was responsible for all the trouble they were making. He ended up having to post bail. Because why? Because he was hospitable? Doesn't work like that in our culture, does it? I mean, if a criminal comes and he's found in your house chances are you're not going to get in trouble. You might get some funny looks. You might get questioned, but you're probably not going to jail. Because in our culture, having somebody in your home doesn't mean the same thing as it did in the first century. In the first century, when you were hospitable, you brought somebody in your home and you treated them like family. You made a connection to them. Jason's in trouble because he had welcomed them into his home. Hospitality in the ancient world meant far more than making sure the house doesn't smell bad means a lot more than making sure the potpourri's been plugged in or that there's clean towels. It means a lot more even than Martha Stewart manages to pull off. I mean, it meant that you treated them as though they were part of your community, part of your family. 
In the ancient world, even farther back, we have strange stories. If you go all the way back into Genesis, there's this very strange story about Lot. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Maybe you know the story. Lot was living in one of those towns and some angels came. And while he was entertaining those angels after he'd opened his home to them, some men came from the city and they wanted to bring the angels. They didn't know they were angels. wanted to bring the visitors out and do icky things with them. And I don't know, does anybody remember what Lot offered to do? Like, does that not bother you? Like, like, I can't even begin to wrap. I mean, I have two daughters, 11 and 14, and the idea that I would offer them in the place of strangers that were, I can't even begin to understand that. And, and there's a whole lot of stuff going on that we could talk about, but the important thing for our purposes here is simply this. What he was doing was normal for hospitality in that world. If you opened your home and you brought a guest in, you took on an obligation to protect them. And if you had not protected them, if he had given them over to the men of the city, that would have been dishonorable on a level that was even higher than what would have happened to his daughters. And that's not possible for us to understand, but that's my point. We can't easily understand how deep-seated the need for care of your guests was. But in the ancient world, it mattered a lot. So it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important. Come back with me to Luke now. So as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She clearly has a high obligation. She has to take care of them. If she didn't take care of them, it would be dishonorable. Not only to her, but it would be displeasing to God. It was one of the rules that God had given to his people that when strangers and aliens come, you invite them into your house and you take care of them. You protect them even with your own life and the lives of your family. She opened her home to him. She had a tremendous obligation to care for him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, that's, a, that's an important phrase. It sat at the Lord's feet. I mean, you can think about it just in terms of like physical location, but, but it meant more than that for the rabbis, for the Jewish teachers of the first century. To sit at somebody's feet was a euphemism for to study as a disciple. And that wasn't normal for women. It was very unusual for women to be allowed to have that position of discipleship. But apparently, Mary has been allowed to sit at Jesus' feet learning as a disciple. He's elevated her. He's given her tremendous honor and a privilege. And she's taking advantage of it. But what's Martha doing? Well, that's interesting. Verse 49 says, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So Mary's sitting and Mary's listening and Mary's learning. But Martha's... ADD, right? I mean, she she just can't concentrate on what's really important. But again, I'm not sure that's quite right. First, because as I've already said, what she's going to end up doing for them in terms of food preparation, stuff like that, it it was obliged. She was required to do it. Not doing it wouldn't have just been not being a great hostess. It would have been dishonoring to God. But beyond that, I, even the way this is phrased, and in, in, I'm reading the New International Version. I really like it. How many of you are reading a New International Version? How many of you are reading something else like a New American Standard? King James? You have an Amplified? Okay. It's interesting. You'll see different kind of translations here. And, and my least favorite of all of them is the New International Version. Um, even though it's usually my favorite translation on this particular passage, I'm really not crazy about it. And I'll tell you why. It, it has to do with how you, dis, how you translate this, a couple of words here. But Martha was distracted. That's the first one. Distracted is not a good translation for that word. It's not a common word. We only see it a couple of other times. In fact, one of the other times we see it, if you want to flip way, way back, is in Second Samuel chapter 6. 
I'm only aware of about five times this word occurs anywhere in the Bible. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the same word. 2 Samuel 6, 6 says this. It's talking about the ark. You remember the ark? It had the Ten Commandments in it. If you take the lid off of it, your faces melt. That, that ark? Okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And in verse 6 of chapter 6 in 2 Samuel... So when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now, the stumbled there is kind of a strange thing. It, it, in the Greek translation, it actually uses the same word that's being used in the book of Luke to talk about Martha being distracted. It says the oxen, what, were distracted? Does that make any sense to anybody? Yet what it literally says is, if you translate it as literally as possible, it says, because the oxen were dragging it away. And the idea is they like stumbled and fell, and as they fell, what happened to the ark that they were carrying? It was being hauled off of its thing. And so it was a reach out to stop it, because the oxen were literally dragging the ark down. We find it the same word used in the book of Ecclesiastes three times to basically talk about the burden that God has tasked us with. To seek wisdom and honor and, and righteous things as opposed to unrighteous things. To find meaning rather than meaninglessness. He says, the author of Ecclesiastes says, this, this task to find meaning and significance in the, the real things rather than the meaningless stuff. That is a high calling. It's a heavy burden that God has tasked us with. And the word tasked is the same word. Literally, he says, it, it's, God has dragged us to this. The oxen have dragged the cart down. And it's the same word that we go back into Luke and it says Martha was distracted. And I just, it's not the right word. Distracted is not the right English word for that. Literally what it would say, I mean, if I weren't doing anything, if I didn't know anything about the story, and that's the problem with translators, just so you know. They've all read the stories the same way everybody else has. All the translators have been in Sunday school. They already know what's wrong with Martha. And so when they read the word, they go, well, yeah, it must mean she's like attention deficit disordered. She can't focus. She's just too, she's Twitter-pated, whatever. Why? Because that's what we've always read. But if you actually take a look at the words, what it literally says is she was dragged away. But Martha was dragged away. Well, that's a slightly different picture than distracted, isn't it? And in fact, it sort of suggests that, okay, what was Mary doing? Well, Mary was sitting at his feet. And what do you think Martha was doing before she got dragged away? I think she was sitting at his feet too. She was listening. She was enjoying that position of privileges as a disciple of Jesus. She was being brought into his circle of confidence. It was an amazing thing, but she had stuff to do. But it doesn't suggest that she was like, okay, enough of that stuff. That's just too fancy for me. I need to go cook. That's not what's being suggested. What's being suggested is that she's being dragged away. And, and I think the picture that emerges more is that Martha's sitting there and she's like, this is amazing. I can't believe he's letting me sit here. Mary, this, he's good, isn't he? Like, he's really good. And he's like, wow. I mean, no rabbis let us listen, but he's like the best rabbi. And we get to listen. This is amazing. Wow. You know, and then over here you hear like... <laughs> Oh man, that's Peter's stomach. I just oh now John's is going off. Because keep in mind these are these are young guys. Most of the disciples at this point would have been late teens at most. 
So they're probably mostly teenagers. What do teenage boys need every hour or so? Okay? They've been sitting here a while, and the day's getting late, and so she's sitting there, and she's like, oh, but, oh, that noise, and, oh, it really is getting late if I don't get stuff started, but I don't, maybe it's just, like, two more minutes. Oh, that was a bad one. Okay. Okay, fine. That's a little bit different picture, isn't it? Not that she was distracted, but she was dragged away. And, and even what it says she was dragged away by, literally, I mean, you, and you have it here in English, she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Does it say all the preparations she wanted to make? All the extra doilies she wanted to make sure got out on the table so everyone felt special? No, it doesn't say that. It says she... She was dragged away by all the preparations which had to be made. And, and literally in the Greek, it's, the word is used as... Do you know what deacons are? The word deacon is it's a word that we use to describe a particular office in the church. A deacon is somebody who serves because that's the Greek word for service. Well, that's the word that she used. She was distracted. She was dragged away by all of her services. It's also the word that's translated as ministries. It's the word that's used to talk about taking care of somebody. So it literally says was she was dragged away by all of the services which were required. That's not quite the same as being distracted at all, is it? So she finally, she gets up. And it's interesting, she gets up and she doesn't go right to the kitchen. She gets up and, and, and something goes bad. Because the end result is that she came to Jesus and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. That's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, she basically rebuked Jesus. Like, how do you pull that one off? Like, what has to be going on for you to decide, I'm going to tell Jesus he's getting it all wrong? Because that's what she did, isn't it? I mean, she gave Jesus an order. You tell her to help me. How does that happen? I, I don't think you can explain that by just saying she was too busy, she was distracted. There's something else going on. I mean, the picture that seems to emerge is she finally, she manages to get herself up. She doesn't want to, but she's got to take care of these people. It's, it's her obligation as the hostess. She's opened her home. And so she's finally, she's like, okay, fine. I will. Okay, Mary. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's really getting in. Hey, Mary. She's pretending like she doesn't see me. Yeah, I guess we're just going to... She... Now just I'll kind of walk away. She's just... And you know how it goes, don't you? Like, have you ever had that kind of experience where somebody's just not quite pulling their weight, as far as you're concerned? I mean, it starts off as just a little irritation, but then you try to make them aware of it, and they don't, they don't buy in, and it gets a little bit worse, doesn't it? And pretty soon, you're like, maybe we do, maybe we do need one of those cage matches. <laughs> you know, and it, and it turns into, it tur- maybe, maybe this is just me, but I don't think so. It turns into not only is, is the person not doing what you want them to do, it's not just, okay, they're doing something I don't like. It turns into, that's how they are. Anybody? They're always like that. That's, she's always been like that. Even as little kids, I'm the one who did the dishes. She took credit afterwards, but she never did it. And she just, I can't, she's just, that's who she is. She just leaves me. To, and she, and, and it, 
you, you see it. I mean, you see it bubbling and you see it boiling and it finally spills over and it spills over. She finally, she just can't have, take it and she looks at Jesus and she goes, don't you even care? She's leaving me to do everything. You get off your butt and you tell her to get off hers. Now, I don't know what she thought once those words came out. I'm guessing that as soon as she said them, she's like, oh, no. And you, but you can't get them back. And she just stands there for a second. Yikes. And Jesus is a pretty nice guy. He's pretty gentle in his response, actually. I mean, the room's fallen deathly silent. Mary's probably pretty red-faced. Martha's probably pretty red-faced. The disciples are like, things just got interesting. <laughs> yeah. And Peter's over there, yeah, but does this mean that the meal's going to be delayed? I mean, what, what exactly? And let's not lose sight of what's important here. And in that silence, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. It's interesting, he uses her name twice. Can you think of any other place in Scripture where Jesus uses somebody's name twice? And if you can't, it's okay, because there aren't any. It only happens once, and in, in the ancient world, especially in Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, when you use somebody's name twice at the beginning, it's playful. It was, it was a family kind of a thing. You, didn't, you would never do that in a formal address. You would never do it when you were rebuking somebody. You would do it with somebody you cared deeply about. It's, it's very playful. It's, it's soft. It's just Martha, Martha. And even, it doesn't come across in English, but in the Greek, his next sentence, it has, it almost, like, it has a, almost like a rhyme and a rhythm to it. it we've got, you're worried and upset about many things. Blah. It's more like, you're so stirred up about such silly stuff. Martha, Martha, so stirred up about such silly stuff. Come on. It's very gentle. He says, few things are needed. In fact, only one thing is needed. And then the question becomes, who's he talking about now? Is he talking about her or is he talking about him? And we've tended to say, or about, about Mary. Is he talking about Martha or is he talking about Mary? And we've tended to assume that he's talking about Martha. You know, you're all stirred up about all these things, but only one thing is needed. You're supposed to be sitting down is kind of the way we've read that. But I don't know that's quite right. I think he may be talking about Mary. He says, many things are needed. A few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is, I don't know, what does yours say? Better. I really, really hate to differ with translations, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you've got an NIV, you've got the word better there. It's a comparison word. If you have another translation, it might not say better. It might say rightly. Or the good or necessary, yeah. Because the Greek word isn't a comparison word. I mean, they have words just like ours. I mean, something can be good and then something can be better, right? If this stool is good, but this stool is better, it means that this stool is better than this one. It's, this stool is worse than this one. You see what I'm saying? But the Greek word here isn't a comparison word. He doesn't say Mary has chosen better because if he'd said that, he'd be saying Mary has chosen better than who? The Martha. But that's not what he says. He says, Mary has chosen rightly. Literally, it says, Mary has chosen the good. He says, you're all stirred up about what she needs to be doing. But in fact, she, she doesn't have all that many things she needs to do. In fact, she only needs to do one thing. And she's chosen the right thing. 
Why? Why doesn't Mary have to do it? Because it's not her house. Whose house is it? Luke's already told us. It's Martha's. Does Martha have to do what she's doing? I think she does. But does Mary? No. Now, could Mary? Sure. Would it be okay if Mary got up and did that? Yes. Would it be expected in that culture? Absolutely. But was it required? No. But Martha wants it. But why? What's going on here? Is is the problem that Martha is just too busy for her own good? Or is the problem that Martha needs a bit of an attitude adjustment about what she's doing? Interesting. Martha's the bad girl of the Bible. She's actually in a book called Bad Girls of the Bible. She really is. Because she's so busy. And people talk about Martha all the time. And it's not real flattering terms. In fact, people talk about Martha a lot of time in order to get out of work. They say things like, uh, I'm a pastor, I've heard this a lot. Well, I could get involved in children's ministries. Yeah, I could help out with that outreach. Yeah, I could do that. But you know what? I I don't want to be like Martha. I I need to be like Mary. Oh, what is it about Mary you need? I, I... I need to focus on being with Jesus. I don't want to get so caught up in doing stuff for Jesus that I don't spend time with Jesus. You know, Mary, I need to be like Mary. I need to avoid being like Martha. And I always find that interesting because I guess they're basing it on that little Luke passage, but we know a little bit more about Mary and Martha from other parts of the Bible. You want to read a really interesting story about Mary and Martha besides the one that everybody always hears about? Turn with me to John chapter 11. This is a story that's totally about Mary and Martha. They're clearly compared here, and yet nobody ever talks about it. It's always the Luke one. John 11 says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Ah, so there they are. It's the two sisters. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sister sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And when they heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved... What does your say? Huh, that's interesting. The attention deficit, neat freak who just can't seem to focus on what's right and important. Jesus loved Martha. Hmm. And her sister. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like John is assuming, yeah, everybody knows, okay, yes, Jesus loves Mary, of course. But wait a minute, don't misunderstand this whole deal. He kind of goes out of his way to say Jesus loved Martha. Yeah, and her sister. Huh, that's interesting. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now that's weird. Jesus loved them, so he didn't go. Huh, that's interesting. Is it possible that sometimes God doesn't respond on our timetable because of how much he loves you? Try to wrap your head around that one for a second. Anybody ever gotten really frustrated with God because he's just not showing up fast enough? I have a good friend who, uh, when he was 21, he started praying for a wife. And he did his best to help God along. Dated a bunch of women just wasn't working out kept praying seven years went by 
God wasn't showing up. And seven years later, he met his wife. I mean, he met the girl who became his wife because that would be weird otherwise, right? <laughs> a couple years later, they were married. And it was a couple years after that that he finally realized, ha, huh, you know, it's interesting. She's seven years younger than me. So when I was 21, she was 14. Huh. Maybe God knew what he was doing. <laughs> if you're struggling because it doesn't seem like God's showing up fast enough, maybe it's not because he doesn't love you. Maybe it's because he loves you more than you can imagine. So they stayed. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, because they have no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples, in a tremendous display of brilliance, replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Nice. <laughs> Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. I love the disciples. <laughs> like, it's really clear when you read stuff like this. Jesus did not pick these guys because they were the best and the brightest. <laughs> he did not pick these guys because they were amazing. Now, it's interesting. We know who they are 2,000 years later because they became amazing. That's just not how they started off. They became amazing at the feet of Jesus. They became amazing running hard after him. I don't know if you ever feel like, I don't really have much to offer God. That's not a bad place to start. Give him yourself and see if you don't end up being somebody that you could never imagine yourself being now. It's certainly what happened with these guys. <laughs> so Jesus had to tell them plainly. And you can just imagine him going, oh my gosh. Okay, no. Lazarus is dead. It was a euphemism. For your sake, I was glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. And then Thomas. There's another guy who gets misunderstood a little bit. Thomas, what's his nickname? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. That's all we remember about him. And look what he says here. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also with him that we may die with him. Whoa. That's, that's a little different than the guy who just doesn't seem to know what he believes, right? Yeah. Now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. That's a little strange, isn't it? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Does that sound like a woman who doesn't get Jesus? I mean, it sounds like a woman who gets quite a bit more about Jesus than most of the world, doesn't it? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But anything you ask for now, God's going to give you. Wow. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Anybody ever heard that verse? It's one of the most popular verses in the New Testament, one of the most commonly quoted verses to talk about who Jesus is. And who did he say it to? To Martha. 
said, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Does that sound like a woman who doesn't get Jesus? It's interesting, actually. If you look at the other three Gospels, in the very middle of the Gospel, something very, very important happens, and that was typical in ancient literature. The center of a book was often an important turning point. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right in the very center, there's a story of Peter who looks at Jesus and goes, I get it, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the key turning point in all three of those stories. It's interesting. The Gospel of John has how many chapters? 21, which puts chapter 11 right about where? Right about the middle. And right there in the middle of the Gospel of John, we have somebody who looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Martha is in the same place as Peter in the other Gospels. John has put her right in the middle saying, this is a woman who gets it. She recognizes Jesus. She understands exactly who he is. Does that sound like a woman who doesn't get Jesus? After she'd said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher's here and he's asking for you. Now when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Jesus is waiting. It's interesting. Jesus is waiting and Mary is still sitting. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Martha has to get Mary off of her butt. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going out to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus had, was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Period. End quotation. It sounds quite a bit like what Martha said, doesn't it? Except that Martha had an additional little thing to tag on to the end. Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But what? But anything you ask for, God will give you. Mary, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That's a little different, isn't it? Who is it that doesn't get Jesus now? Now, let me say something. I'm not trying to get you to be a Mary basher. Okay, This is not about putting Mary in the bad light. It's, it's about rehabilitating Martha. It's about helping you understand that there, there's something more going on here. It's not just a question of one sister gets it, one sister doesn't. One sister's too busy and one sister has enough time. It, there's just more going on than that. And you know the rest of the story here, of course. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I'm not saying that Martha was better than Mary. And I'm not saying that here in Luke 10 that Mary didn't do the right thing. I think she did. Jesus explicitly said she's chosen rightly. And I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't upset or that he wasn't disappointed in Martha. He clearly was. What I'm saying is what Martha did wrong is not what we think it was. It's not that she was too busy. She had to do what she did. It's not that she didn't understand Jesus. It's not that she couldn't pay attention to important things. None of that's Martha's problem. And it's interesting, Jesus didn't tell Martha, sit down, did he? He didn't tell her, hey, you know what? Forget Peter's stomach. He didn't tell her to sit down, chill out, slow up. And every other time that we see Martha, she's running around. She's the one who serves the meal before the triumphal entry. She keeps doing what she's doing. So if, if Jesus was telling her, hey, just relax, she never gets it. I don't think the problem is that she was busy. So what was wrong? 
And the answer is, it's not that Martha was too busy. The problem is that Martha was bitter about it. Good, I, I see a bunch of people nodding at this point. Good. I hope at this point as we walk through these different pieces, like that begins to make sense because you see it in her statement, don't you? It's, it's not, I don't want to do this. It's not, I, I'm not going to do this. It's not that this is not worth doing. It's, why aren't you doing this with me? I have to get up and do this, but why is she not helping me? So much so that it, it and this is the problem with bitterness, is it poisons the well of our souls. And, and, it, and it bubbles up until it pours over and it just, we just vomit it out on everybody else. And that's exactly what Martha does here, doesn't it? I mean, she ends up rebuking Jesus. She tells Jesus to get off of his butt to tell her sister to get off of hers. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? How could you possibly get there? Can you imagine being so angry that you get mad at God? Okay, good. People are like, well, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I might have done that one, actually. Yeah, because it happens because that's what bitterness does, is it poisons the well of our souls and it robs us of the joy of being able to serve and to be able to sit and everything else associated with our relationship with God. Bitterness destroys that. And I find that most Christians today have a huge problem with bitterness. There's very few of the well of our souls that have not been at least a little tainted by it. And it may not be in exactly Martha's situation, although it might be. I know an awful lot of wives who are pretty bitter about the services they have to render to their families. Because I don't get thanked very often. I clean up the house and then the mud comes in. Yeah. They they don't appreciate it. They don't they don't value it. They don't respect me. And just and and that, that it begins to get in there and it begins to bubble and eventually I mean it probably doesn't ever happen to you, but for some people it comes out in some really nasty things being said to family members. Anybody ever spewed on anybody? We do it in our marriages. He doesn't appreciate this. She doesn't appreciate this. I do all these things, and you know what? She doesn't value those. She only values the ones that I don't do. I do all these things, and he doesn't care about those. He only cares about these ones that I don't do. And I don't know why I have to do this by myself. Why am I doing the dishes? Why am I the one who's running these errands? Why am I doing this? And she's like, why am I the one who's doing the grass? Why am I the one who's having to, to put the oil in the car? Why do I have to take care of these things? And they don't care. And it just and it, it, it bubbles and it bubbles, and it boils over, and then it spews out. And we have an awful lot of marriages that suffer from a deep well of bitterness. It happens in the church. Have you guys ever heard of the 80-20 rule? This is a rule that in pastors like this rule. Because the 80-20 rule says, hey, 20% of the people in the church are doing 80% of the work of the church. Okay, does that make sense? So 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. Dumbest rule I've ever heard. Totally not true. Because 20% of the people cannot do 80% of the work. At most, 20% of the people can do, guess how much work? 20%. Which means that if the 80-20 rule is right, and I think it kind of is, it means that 80% of the work of the church is just not getting done. Okay, that's a problem. And if you're part of the 80% who aren't doing 
The part, if you're not putting your gifts into service for the kingdom, if you're not looking to see God glorified in everything, if you're part of the 80%, then don't you dare use Martha as justification for laziness. Don't you dare say, well, I don't want to be like Martha. What part of Martha do you not want to be like? Do you not want to be the part of Martha that got to actually serve Jesus and his disciples? Do you want to be the, you do not want to be like the Martha who actually got to stand there when Jesus looked at her and revealed himself more clearly than he had to any other person in the Gospels. I am the resurrection and the life. No parables, no tricky stuff, no metaphors. I just want you to know, here's the truth about who I am. Curtain pulled aside, there you go. You don't want to be that Martha that gets that clear a revelation from God? You don't want to be the Martha that goes to Jesus and say, anything you ask for, God will give you. You don't want to be the Martha that has that kind of faith. You don't want to be the Martha that gets to serve before the triumphal entry. How cool would that have been? I would love to have been a waiter for that. Martha got to do it. Wow. Which part of Martha do you not want to be like? Listen, if you're part of the 80%, don't use Martha as a justification. Because that's not what that story's about. The problem is that most of the people that find themselves, or at least think they're in the 20% camp, are deeply bitter about it. And I've been there. How? How can people watch all the things that I do at this church? How can the people see us do this and not join in? How come I'm the one who has to always go over and do this? How come I'm the one who gets the phone call? How come I'm the one who has to get out of bed in the middle of the night? How come I have to do this? Why isn't other people doing it? Why isn't everybody else doing it? Why? Just... Mm. God? Oh, right. There's a lot of bitterness in the church. And there's a tremendous well of bitterness in the leadership in the American church. I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're bitter in your job. Or you're bitter in your marriage. Or you're bitter because of what's going on in your family. Or you're bitter in the church. Or you're bitter in school. I don't, I don't know. Because bitterness can find its way in in a lot of different ways. You need to understand that was Martha's problem. It wasn't the service. It was the bitterness that kept her from having any joy in it. That's what she gets rebuked for. If you're here today and you're struggling with bitterness, you've got to understand we have to do something about it. We can't live like that. So let me give you three things that you can do about bitterness if you're struggling with it. You might want to jot these down. They're pretty simple. The first one is you can remember who it is that you're serving. Because when we lose sight of who it is that we're serving, that's when bitterness comes in. Do you think Martha would have ever spewed out if she remembered, I get to cook for Jesus? You see what I'm saying? I guarantee you somewhere, and I don't know exactly how it played out, but I guarantee you at some point Jesus very gently... Martha, Martha, you're so stirred up about such, you're so upset about your sister not helping. Listen, she, it's not her home. She doesn't have the same obligations. There's not a lot of stuff she needs to do. In fact, really there's only one thing that she has to do and she's, she's chosen the right thing. And what did he say? He said, it will not be what? Taken away from her. You want to take this moment away from her? This moment where she gets to sit here at my feet and, and I don't know exactly, but I, I got to think that Martha at that point went, well, I just, what? no, <laughs> no, I, I'm, you're right, I'm sorry. You know, I, yeah, honestly, she's not that good a cook. Um, so, you know, it's okay, Mary, why don't you stay there? I'm going to, I'm going to, I get to cook for Jesus and I'm going to. 
That's actually kind of cool. I get, I, I get to, I don't know that I even want to share that with you. I, I want to be the one, I want to, I, I, I cook for, I mean, you see, you, you take your eyes off of the wrong person. I mean, her eyes were on Martha, Mary. And when she got her eyes back on Jesus, I get to cook for Jesus. Suddenly, oh, this is actually, this is kind of a good thing. I, we do these big sets at our church. And a couple of years ago for Christmas, we were working on the set. And I was not in the best of moods, I'll be honest. Bitterness had crept in and it was robbing me of the joy of being able to do that. And, and at some point, I'm sitting there with my family, and we're like, we, I don't know, we we're painting something or stapling something, and I kind of was just like, ah, boy, it'd be easier if there were other people here. And I don't know why people won't volunteer. You know, I'd, maybe we're wasting our time. I don't feel, people don't even really appreciate this. And what's the, you, bleh, bleh, bleh. And my oldest daughter, who didn't happen to hear that because I was doing it quietly, kind of came back in, and she's like, this is awesome. What? She's like, well, this is like building a big birthday present for Jesus. And I was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that puts it in a different light. And it totally does when your eyes get off of the people who aren't doing the work and onto the one that you're actually serving. Listen, in your marriage, you can have your eyes on Jesus that you are blessing Jesus by the blessing of your families. You, you serve Jesus when you work hard to bring money home and put it on the table with food. You work hard when you do everything that you do in the home, whether you're a man or a woman, and all those things that get thrown into making a house work. You're actually glorifying Jesus, and when you remember that, then suddenly a lack of appreciation here, here, just doesn't mean the same thing. So the first thing you do with bitterness is you remember who it is that you're ultimately serving. second thing that you do about bitterness is you change your standards of success. It's not really about Mary and Martha, but I think it's an important part about bitterness. If you, if you have a standard of success that says, this counts if I do this. This counts if this happens. This counts if he says thank you. This counts if she says thank you. This counts if they say, I mean, you, we have all kinds of different standards. This counts if I get the promotion. This counts if I get the raise. Here's our standards. And if I don't get these things, it's not a success. And if I don't get these things and it's not a success, then bitterness begins to creep in. Change your standard of success. Did I do my job well? Did I glorify God with how well I did what I was supposed to do? Did I bless these people? Did I honor these people whether they recognize it or not? See, if the recognition is the standard of success, then bitterness is always around the corner. But if your standard of success is doing the thing that you're called to do well and glorifying God by that, then bitterness gets shut out faster than you can believe. And the third thing that you can do to deal with bitterness is simply... Listen, if you, you recognize who it is that we do it for, if we change our standards of success, the third thing you do is you recognize that comparisons are fatal. You hear me? But he got that promotion. And I'm better at the job than he is. I just don't happen to have the... I just... He, I, I mean, you, that almost screams bitterness, doesn't it? If it's not there yet, you know it's just lurking... One step away in the shadows. Comparisons. Comparisons pave the way for bitterness. Partly because they set us up with the wrong standards of success. And the wrong standards of success take our eyes off the one that we're ultimately serving. Bitterness poisons the well of the soul. And it destroys our lives and our marriages and our jobs. And it destroys our peace. And it's dangerous. Martha's problem wasn't that she was too busy. You can be as busy as you want for Jesus. But if you're bitter about it, 
It means almost nothing. Would you pray with me? God, I just confess that I struggle with this. Just recently I've struggled with it. Bitterness gets in so easy. And, and my guess is that I can say on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, we're sorry for that. And ask for your forgiveness. Would you please forgive us? Forgive us for the fact that we've taken our eyes off of the fact that we get to do it for you, whatever it is. Forgive us for the fact that we, uh, we've put our eyes on the wrong standards of success. And forgive us for the fact that we've, we've lived comparing ourselves to each other. Forgive us for the fact that we that we've allowed bitterness not only to steal our joy, but we've allowed bitterness to rob us of effectiveness and peace and hope and all those things that are supposed to characterize the Christian life. Forgive us for the fact that we have even used Martha to justify it. We've not only used Martha to justify laziness, we've used Martha to justify bitterness. Because we've said, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And the reason we're not going to do it is not because we need more time with you, not because we feel like we need to sit more at your feet. The reason we're not going to do it is because we don't feel appreciated. We don't feel honored and we don't feel exalted. And so we're taking our toys and we're going home. And so Martha has been an excuse for justifying even bitterness. And we thank you that when we look carefully at your word, we realize there's a lot in Martha to be honored. There's a lot in Martha to be emulated. She was a busy woman. And we see here in Luke that there was a period where bitterness threatened to rob her of the ability to be busy with joy. And we don't want to make that mistake. So Lord, find those kernels of bitterness in us right now. Reveal them to us through your Holy Spirit. Give us the strength to dig them out, to throw them away. Make the well of our souls clean this morning. Let us return to the world fresh. To be busy for you. There's nothing wrong with that. But to be free of the bitterness that robs it of meaning and significance, that robs us of joy and peace. Thank you that even when we fail in this way, you're so gentle. Like the way you were gentle with Martha, you're gentle with us. And that this confession results in a fresh wave of your spirit to do the very thing that we ask. So we thank you that we are made clean now. That the waters flow clear and cold and refreshing. And may we flow out of this place in that same way, clean clear, refreshing, free of bitterness, and free to get busy for you.